The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's been another fun, fun week in technology. The IRS is now going to use facial recognition if you want to lock log into your IRS account. And people are up in arms over that. The FAA clears 90% of the aircraft to land now, even with 5G operating near the airport. We'll talk a bit about that. There was a DeFi platform called Qubit Finance. They lost $80 million in cryptocurrency because the logic of their DeFi network had a flaw, and they're trying to get that money back from the guy that took it. And hopefully we're going to get to the birth of weather forecasting back in the 1800s, and we'll talk about why that actually occurred at that moment. This week we're going to feature the man who was known as father of the Android operating system, Andy Rubin. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Donald in Kansas City. Dear Tech Talk, I was eject my USB flash drive before removing them because I heard not doing that could cause the drive to be corrupted. Someone saw me eject the drive the other day and said, I don't have to do that anymore. I can just pull it out. My question is, do I really have to hit eject before I pull out the USB drive? Well, um, Donald, you didn't really mention whether your uh, computer was a Windows machine, a Linux box, or a Mac, and, and that does make a bit of a difference. Now, let's talk about Windows first. Well, first of all, let's talk about what the issue is. When you've got a thumb drive and you're saving to the thumb drive, you can actually uh, opt for better performance, and you can save the data to a temporary memory called a cache, and then the saving is done, you can go on and do your other work because it saves very quickly to the, to the cache memory. And then slowly, at the speed of the thumb drive, the data is transferred from cache to the thumb drive. So there's a little bit of a lag there. And so it is possible if you've saved something to a thumb drive and it goes to cache rather than directly to the thumb drive, and you pull the thumb drive out, you'll corrupt the thumb drive because it will not be a complete saving operation. So the question is, does the computer use cache or not? Uh, the old eject button, what it did, it would actually empty the cache. You hit eject USB drive and it empties the cache of anything's in the cache and that makes certain that you won't lose anything. Well, prior to fall of 2018, Windows 10 default setting for USB flash drive removal was better performance which basically enabled caching. 
And that meant that you that you had prior to fall of 2018, if you had a Windows machine, by default, it would write to cache. And you would have to hit eject button first to empty the to clear the cache and, and save the cache to the USB drive before you pulled out the drive. However, in the fall of 2018, um, with, uh, Microsoft changed the default setting from better performance to quick removal. And that basically, by default, disabled cache writing for the USB flash drives uh, with the release of the fall 2018 Windows 10 update. So if you didn't, if you got Windows and you didn't change the default setting of your, of your, um, of your system, and um, and you've got a uh, Windows 10 update that was installed after 2018, um, I would say you could just pull out the thumb drive because cache is not enabled. On the other hand, both Linux machines and Macs have cache write caching enabled by default. As a result, you could easily end up with data loss and a possibly a corrupted thumb drive if you simply remove the drive without ejecting it first. Doc, what's now, actually happening to my Mac? I mean, uh, I always have to drag, you know, the the image of the drive, you know, of the thumb drive, over to the trash, and that's how I eject it. And what what is it actually happening on on a Mac when I do that? When you you drag the image, there's nothing that's for ejecting. Uh, you no, just, it's oh, that, you just that, drag that is it the over. eject. That is yeah. the eject function. Yeah. So what what's happening? It if if it's written to cache, it just basically uh, copies all the cache data to the thumb drive. It completes the process. And so that's why it takes a few seconds too. I always notice there's a tiny yeah. bit of lag. So and it's the, actually the doing something. The only reason that yeah. they have cache enabled is that the cache writing is very fast. So you have the impression that writing to the thumb drive is like lightning fast because it goes to cache. And then the transfer from cache to the thumb drive is slower because cache memory is slower. And so they just want to, so they basically have opted for better performance. Now you could go to your Mac and you could change the default. And instead of having, uh, instead of having better performance selected, you, you could, you could choose quick removal and then you could not write to cache. You could write directly to the thumb drive, but then it would always be slower. So you have a choice there. I kind of like actually not using cache because now everything is fast enough that I don't mind a, you know, you know, a second delay. We got an email from Doug in St. Louis. Dear Tech Talk, I'm getting ready to take my first transatlantic flight in over 20 years going to Italy. I've heard that hackers can break into my laptop via Wi-Fi. Now, I know my laptop has airplane mode. If I turn that on, it will be present, prevent people from breaking into my laptop while I play local games. Doug from St. Louis. Well, um, Doug, well the, well, the short answer is yes. If you put on the airplane mode, nobody can get into your laptop. That is, that is very true. But I'm telling you, on international flights, many of them offer Wi-Fi. And many of the international carriers offer you free Wi-Fi. So, um, and you can, and, and some of the uh, entertainment uh, that they offer is available through the Wi-Fi network. So, um, I kind of like connecting to Wi-Fi when I'm on the flight, if I can use it. Now, but what I do whenever I travel, actually, whenever I'm on a public Wi-Fi network, I always use a, a VPN. Now, I happen to like ExpressVPN. I've used it for years and years. And I've got 
I mean, I pay like $90 a year or something. It, it, it's good for up to five devices. So I have it on my, on my, all my laptops. I got it on my cell phone and I can just click it on and off easily. And so I, I would, uh, if I'm, if I'm using on, on my laptop on a public Wi-Fi network, like on the airplane or on the, or at the hotel, I always turn on my, my VPN and then I'm, I'm secure. But I, I would, uh, it's always fun to have Wi-Fi on the, when I'm when I'm traveling internationally, sometimes I mean, if they have Wi-Fi and then you sometimes I can make phone calls over, you know, I can make a Skype call, but via Wi-Fi when I'm when I'm traveling international, you can also send text messages. It's, it's just fun to do while you're flying. Are you I using got an email your from wait, just a second, in Colorado Springs? Hi, Dr. Shirts and Andrew. Uh, regarding profiles in IT, take a look at Nihad Hassan and Rami Hajazi who wrote open source intelligence methods and tools and tools, a practical guide to online intelligence. It's a 2018 book that, uh, that uh, many, that nearly that intelligence experts estimate has more than 90% of the intelligence information uh, that's available on the internet. And, and these are all open source, op free sites that you can go to it covers a lot of territory. Well, Ernie, I, I did. I took a look. I reviewed it, took reviews of that book. You know, if, if you do want to do intelligence work and gather data in the U.S., this book is fantastic. It's very North America centric. It doesn't it doesn't cover Europe, doesn't cover Asia. It mostly are sources in the U.S., but it, it looks like a pretty interesting book. I'm, I went ahead and ordered it last night when I was reading your email. I'll uh, I'll take a look at it. Uh, it's going to come in on Monday and I'll talk about it at a later show. We got an email from Ken H., Dear Tech Talk, please spell the names of the people that you do for profiles in IT. I like to search for them on the web. Sometimes I can't figure out how their names are spelled. I think he wrote that after last week's uh, profile in IT, and he was trying to guess how to spell his name. And that's actually a good suggestion, Ken. Uh, dear Doc and Andrew, I just came across a lawsuit. This is from Bob in Maryland. He's a long-term listener. I just came across a lawsuit recently filed by Google against Google for using dark patterns uh, to trick users into giving Google access to more of their data. The DC and Texas lawsuits allege that, allege that users, uh, that uh, Google tricks users into giving them more access than they, sh than they really want to. Uh, they allege that Google uses deceptive and unfair practices and may have violated local laws. Now, dark patterns, which the suit claims are a crucial part of Google's alleged deceptive practices, refer to the practice of using design tricks like interface design, social engineering to take advantage of behavioral tendencies to manipulate users into doing something that harms them. Like, uh, what do you think about that, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, actually, dark patterns are, are, are used quite frequently to trick people to give data. Like if I would ask you, hey, why don't you give your face recognition data to Google? Uh, you'd say, heck no, I'm not going to do that. But then what Google is going to do, they're going to say, hey, let, would you like to see how you're going to look when you're 90 years old? We'll age your face for you. And then you take a picture of your face and send it to them, and then they, they, they age your face for you. And voila. They have your face recognition data. But where would you find that? I mean, I, I've never encountered that kind of prompt. I mean, is it in an ad? Is it in you know? How, how do they? How would they prompt you to to do that? It it would it would be like a website. I mean, there 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 are different uh, different websites that will that will they might advertise that, 
or or another one would be uh, another example would be uh, you you order something online and you get a bonus you get a bonus item showing up in your shopping cart <laughs> that you didn't really want. <laughs> um, uh, the, and so or uh, probably the ones you encounter the most, Andrew, would be these complicated opt-in and opt-out boxes that, you, you know, to try to protect your privacy. And what they'll do, they'll word them in such a complicated way that it sounds like you're opting out, but really you're opting in. You know what they, I always do? You hit the X in the corner. <laughs> yeah, I don't answer any yeah. questions. I just hit the X in the corner and make the box go away. Well, it's called, and so a, a guy came up with these sort of these tricks that all these guys use to get to get you to share your data. And he called it dark patterns. He just he just coined that name. So he created a website, darkpatterns.org. Kind of fun to go there. So you go to darkpatterns.org and 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 on if you go to darkpatterns.org, he has the hall of shame. And they've got all sorts of examples of dark patterns that people have used. So regulators are trying to um, to get places like Google not to uh, not to use these deceptive practices. That's what that's what's going on here, and uh, hopefully they'll they'll win there. But but you see, Google's not actually actually breaking the law. I mean, if you read everything correctly, you won't make the wrong decision. That's just that people don't read everything thoroughly. We got an email from Doug in Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk, I use Windows 10. Love the clipboard. I use it frequently, but it only remembers my last entry. Now, sometimes, you know, I might have two or three paragraphs that I want to paste in at different places. And as soon as I save the second paragraph, the first one is gone. Is there any way to activate clipboard history? It'd be a fantastic feature. Love the show, Doug in Kilmarnock. Well, Doug, when Windows 10 was released, Microsoft made a very useful upgrade to clipboard called, voila, clipboard history. Exactly what you want, Doug. Now, in the days of the old Windows, in the in the days of the old Windows clipboard, you were limited to just storing one item. Uh, the last item was that you either copied or cut. Uh, now, with clipboard history, it you can remember more. Uh, you can remember. All of this, all of the clipboard saving events for this particular session of Windows until you log out of Windows. Now, the, now the trouble is that by default, clipboard history is turned off both in Windows 10 and Windows 11. So, if you want to turn on Windows clipboard history, you simply right-click on the Start button and open up Settings. Once you get into Settings, there's like you just search for clipboard. There's a there's a search uh, box there, just and you're searching through settings. Search for clipboard, and uh, and of all the clipboard settings, you'll see something called clipboard settings. Click on that, and then you'll see right in the middle of the screen clipboard history. Just toggle it on. At that point, your clipboard history will be turned on for either your Windows 10 machine or your Windows 11 machine. Now, you can still paste something from clipboard as always with Control V. <clears throat> or you can have a combination of edit and paste, as you always did. It's just that it remembers all of your actions for this particular session of Windows. And, and, uh, and it will remember everything you've, you've saved into the clipboard until you restart Windows, and then it's gone. So, Doc, do you know um, the, the definition of a, of a session? Then, I mean, it, if, if you put it to sleep and you get to the next day and you turn on your computer again, that, is that still the same session as long as you have not restarted 
Yeah, no, yeah, as, yeah, because you put it to sleep, it, it remembers everything where it is. And yeah. So it just continues the session. Uh, if you put it into hibernate, it remembers the session. But if you actually, uh, if you actually shut it down, right, then it then it then it forgets it. And so now, if you want to see what's in what is in, uh, in 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 stored in clipboard, instead of hitting Control V, hit the Windows button. That's a little Windows button down the bottom. Vin, Windows V. And and a and a screen comes up and it will show it will show a picture of all of the uh, clipboard uh, storage events and you can just scroll down through them and if you want to if you if you want to then uh, you know paste one of them you just click on it and you paste it um, and it, it saves them now but of course as soon as you shut down the machine they're all gone now if there's one clipboard item that you want to keep between sessions. You go to the upper right-hand corner. There's a little, those three little dots. Click on that, and then you've got a window comes up, and you can either and you can pin it. You can pin it to the clipboard, and if you pin the uh, the item to the clipboard, when you shut down your computer, it will save the pinned item, and when you come back, it'll still be there. So you can keep you can keep pinned items between sessions. So this clipboard history is pretty uh, pretty useful. Um, do, um, you've got, you've got, do you have clipboard history enabled on the Mac, uh, Andrew? I've never you? thought, no, I've never even felt the need, you know, I haven't thought about that. No. It's pretty, it's pretty convenient to, to have that. I mean, because there'll be sometimes I'll be working on tech talk and I'll paste, I'll paste two or three things in, or I'm, or I'm, I'm working on a document and, and then I, uh, you know, I've got to say paste something and then it forgets what I just copied previously and I go back and copy. And so it's, it's actually pretty useful when you're, if, when you're doing a lot of editing work. Yeah. Uh, we got an email from Alex in, uh, in Alexandria. I've got an old laptop that came with windows seven pre-installed. The hard drive died. I got to replace it. Now my coworker recommended Linux, uh, Linux uh, for it. Which version of Linux do you recommend for a system that was running Windows 7 previously? Thanks for your help, Alex and Winchester. Well, replacing Windows with Linux is a great idea. It's a great learning event. You know, you learn a lot with it. You'll have to use open source applications uh, for, you know, that you'll install in the Win Linux. And so a lot of your old applications won't work, but there are other really good applications that you can use. Now, there are a number of excellent Linux distributions. The one that sort of feels the most like Windows, and it's really got a great interface, is Linux Mint. Now, Linux Mint's evolved over time. It's, it's one of the most user-friendly for Windows users of all the Linux distributions. Um, those are called distros. The, and, uh, in fact, if you install Windows 7, if you install it, if you install window, Windows, uh, the Cinnamon des Desktop, on your on your computer, that's the latest version of of, uh, of Linux Mint, the Cinnamon Desktop. You'll find that it looks a lot like Windows Seven. Now it's easy to download Mint and burn it into a blank CD. What you do, you'll download it, burn it to a blank CD, or burn it or or copy it to a USB thumb drive, and then you simply boot on the CD or boot on the USB thumb thumb drive and go through the implementation installation process. Uh, now you can download this. You simply go to linuxmint.com. Linux L I N U X Mint M I N T dot com. You can download it. It's free and have fun playing and learning with your new Linux machine. Listen, we love your emails. Email 
Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, we most certainly will. Uh, And by the way, if you're not using an iPhone, all three of you, you're probably using something that was developed by today's subject in profiles in IT. We meet the developer of the Android operating system next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Andrew Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. Andrew Rubin, uh, his friends call him Andy, is the developer behind the Android operating system for mobile devices. He's the father of the Android. Rubin was born in 1963 in Chappaqua, New York. He was the son of a psychologist who later founded his own direct marketing firm selling electronic gadgets. Uh, uh, Ruben helped his dad test those little gadgets. I think one of them was like a like a credit card scanner, and Ruben would help them test them. He liked to tinker with electronics. In 81, Ruben graduated from the Horace Greeley High School in Chappaqua, New York. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Utica College in New York. Now, after college, he went to work for Carl Zeiss. This is the German uh, lens-making company, but he... He was in their research lab in New York. He was a robot engineer. He worked in robotics. Uh, 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 <clears throat> they, what they wanted to do there at Zeiss, they wanted to get robots that would uh, make lenses. They wanted to automate the lens making process. Now in 88, he moved to Geneva, Switzerland and worked as a software engineer at, a, uh, at an instrument company, uh, which I, have, I really can't pronounce this French name at an instrument company, uh, and he, he enjoyed himself there, uh, and he was actually quite happy there in Switzerland. I think he liked to ski. But, uh, but he came back to the U.S. because of a chance meeting in the Cayman Islands. He went on vacation to the Cayman Islands, uh, and uh, while walking on the beach one morning very early, he liked, he liked early morning walks on the beach, 
He ran across a guy sleeping on the beach. Bill Caswell was sleeping on the beach. Bill had been kicked out of his cottage the night before <laughs> after a fight with his girlfriend. That, that's Lupin. literally trouble in paradise, Doc. That's literally right. trouble, trouble in paradise. Trouble in paradise. You, you, when you get kicked so out of your it? Cayman's cottage. That's right. So it was. It wasn't the romantic getaway that um, that he that he was hoping. Not for. at that moment, at least. Maybe they had a good, <laughs> nice makeup after that, but not at that. So moment. So Reuben didn't know this guy from Adam, and he said, "Well, come and stay at my place." So he so he let Ru- so he let him just uh, hang out at at Reuben's place, and they. Uh, and uh, and he stayed actually with Reuben, you know, for a few days there. I, I don't think he ever made it back to his cottage. <laughs> so actually, he and Reuben got got along quite well. It turned out that Caswell worked at Apple, and so Caswell offered Reuben a job at Apple, and he accepted it. So he he moved back from uh, Geneva, Switzerland, and went to work at, for Apple in 1989. He was at Apple, actually, for three years until 92. Now, Reuben loved working on robots. He, he was always making new kind of robots. Like, you know, at home, his doorbell, you, 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 you press the, the doorbell button, and a robot arm comes up and takes a hammer to hit a gong. And that's his doorbell. It's a, it's a robotic doorbell. He, he would have all kinds of robots that he just played with all the time. He was always making making drones that were you know crashing out in front of the place. When he had when he had his when he would get coffee at work, he would push a button. He'd have a robotic arm make his cup of coffee. He was always playing with robots. Well, his nickname at Apple because of his interest in robots, they called him not a- not Andrew. They called him Android. They, 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 so that was his nickname, and that kind of stuck. They, um, they just called him Android there at Apple, and actually he liked that Android. He, he even, he even bought the domain name Android.com because he thought, well, maybe one day I'll have my personal website on that. Did, did he use it eventually, or, or not really? Eventually, he used it when he, when he, when he developed the Android operating system. He ended up using that domain name. Oh wow! But in the beginning, he, he wasn't even thinking of an operating system. He was just thinking robots. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now he, he was always, I mean, he was like a prankster. He, like he, uh, he got in trouble with the IT department there at Apple. He reprogrammed the company's internal phone system to make it appear as though <laughs> all calls were coming from the CEO, <laughs> no matter who was calling. <laughs> he just, he basically corrupted the caller ID function of the phone system. And it always showed they were coming from the CEO. Now, <clears throat> In 1993, uh, Apple spun off a unit that was exploring handheld computing and communications devices, and they they created a separate entity called General Magic. They spun that off in 93, and uh, Ruben joined that spinoff company. Actually, you, have you ever heard of General company. Magic? What what did they what did they actually do? I don't remember this at all. They made Magic Cap, which was an operating system for handheld devices. Oh wow. And uh, and so he he went there uh, to see they were already thinking, you know, portable devices. This was part of future think there at Apple, and uh, and he and he went there for total immersion. He actually built built a bunk bed right there in the office, and he slept in the office, and he would just go there. They you know they would just you know I guess eat there in the office. He'd sleep in the office. He was just working you know on and off twenty four hours a day. And they and they de- developed Magic Cap, an operating system for handhelds. That was actually a precursor 
to the modern smartphone. And this actually. is 30 years ago. I mean, we barely had cell phones. Cell phones were big and bulky and only really rich people had them. They used to, people used to bring fake cell phones to uh, you know the table in a restaurant like in LA or somewhere so they could look important. But the cell phone was still just beginning to become a thing, a, a consumer item in 30 years ago. I know, it was, it was basically too early for the, for the, for the time. It was yeah. like 10 years too early. Yeah. Uh, and they, and so it, it, Magic Cap actually failed in 97. Uh, they, they really couldn't pick up any, any support for it. It was, I think that the, 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 uh, the, the, the technology really wasn't there. See, the iPhone came out in 2007, I think. So it, it was like 10 years ahead of its time. But the interesting thing, that was an Apple initiative back then which sort of speaks to Steve Jobs' uh, foresight. Yeah. Uh, now, after Magic Cap failed, uh, Ruben joined Artemis Research, which was founded by Steve Perlman. And, and Artemis Research eventually became Web TV. And so he worked on Web TV, <clears throat> which was eventually acquired by Microsoft. Uh, it was acquired by Microsoft in 1999. So then in 1999, he started his own company, Danger Incorporated. Oh, he likes that Danger, name. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's a good name. Incorporated. Yeah. He rented a store that he called, he called it the laboratory in Palo Alto. And he populated it with, guess what? Robots. Robots. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sort of a clubhouse for Ruben and his engineer friends. And they'd go there. I mean... I mean, because his dream was, I mean, he'd create robots and sell them. That was his dream. Well, the first thing they started working on was an internet-enabled device. Uh, so they made like this internet-enabled device, and they tried to convince uh, um, VCs that this would be really interesting. You could connect it to the internet and do stuff with it. But they couldn't get any VC interest. And then they did something which was quite interesting. They added a radio receiver and transmitter basically a cell phone receiver and transmitter and it was internet enabled and they started working on that. And so that's like kind of a precursor of a cell phone, really, if you think about it. And they pitched it as a smartphone, an internet smartphone. You could connect to the internet either by cellular, either by radio or by, or by Wi-Fi. So it was an internet smartphone and they called it sidekick. And they actually, got VC support for it, and they sold it to T-Mobile. So if you remember back in the day, T it was called T-Mobile Sidekick. Nobody knew that it was a, a product of Danger Incorporated, but everybody knew about the T-Mobile Sidekick, and that was actually uh, one of the first times that T-Mobile got into this smartphone business. Now, in 2002, see, the, the iPhone didn't come out until 2007, uh, in 2002, uh, Ruben gave a talk on the development of Sidekick to an engineering class at Stanford. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, attended the lecture. It's the first time they'd met Ruben. Uh, and uh, on his device that he talked about, Sidekick, Google was the default search engine. So they liked that. So that was the first time that they'd ever heard of him. So, in, but in 2003, Ruben was ousted as CEO by the board, you know, because once, once you get money from VCs, the VCs control everything, yeah. they kicked them out, even though we started the company. That's the evil VC influence. And that but happens probably, a lot. That really happens a lot. You have to be careful about taking money if you want to stay in charge. 
That's right. Once they put in money, they own it. They yeah. own the shop. Yeah. Um, but that was probably a gift in disguise. So, see, he was all he was sort of inching toward the idea of a of a of a of a mobile phone platform with Sidekick. He'd been walking this along uh, quite a while and thinking in this direction, going dating all the way back to Magic Cap. That it's there'd sort of been a, a a thread which connected all of his various initiatives. So using the domain name that he had used for years, that he'd had for years, android.com, uh-huh. he started a new business. <laughs> and he assembled a small team of engineers and product planners. The goal was to design a mobile handset that was open source and it was available for modification by any and all software designers. Ruben spent all of his money, all of his savings on the project. And he was running out of dough. So he called his friend, Mr. Per- Perlman. Um, you know, Mr. Perlman um, was the uh, was the guy who had uh, who had backed him for uh, for um, web, uh, web with, TV. You know, he met him at Web TV back yeah. in, when he was doing Artemis. He called back uh, Perlman and his friend and uh, and told him he was broke. Perlman ultimately trusted Andy and gave him a hundred thousand dollars to try to do something with this, with this project. This time, when he went to VCs, they loved it, and he was about ready to get VC funding. But Larry Page at Google found out about the company. They visited him and they, he showed them what they had going on, and uh, and then they left. And about two weeks later, uh, Larry Page brought back four people, his whole engineering team. They talked to him at depth. Forty days later, they bought Android.com. They bought the company. for. Uh, they didn't publish the price then. This was in 2005. They acquired Android.com for $50 million. And, uh, and Andy... Andy Rubin became VP of engineering at Google, and he oversaw the development of the Android operating system, which was a, an open source operating system for smartphones. Now, he had trouble getting carriers interested because carriers, you know, they, they controlled the whole phone. They loaded on their own software. They made money on it. They did all the tracking. They, it was their platform. They owned it all. And he just he just couldn't get them really interested because uh, they said why why should we give up control of the platform to anybody else? And um, he was they were working on getting T-Mobile because he had worked with T-Mobile on Sidekick. He knew some of the T-Mobile people, and uh, they were sort of getting interested, but still they weren't ready to to jump. And then in 2007, everything changed. Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone. And the world of mobile phones was never the same afterwards. And the difference now, there, too, is the, the touch screen because the iPhone, and we're used to doing that now, but if you think about cell phones before that, um, the, you had to like scroll through like using the up or down button on, you know, on your little keyboard and you had to find, you know, news for today, you know, in this little thing that looked like computer writing, you know, computer lettering. And all of a sudden you have this thing that you just poke at and it changes everything. That's right. It was it, it was it was a sea change because uh, back then the you know the the mobile device of choice was the BlackBerry, right? And it was it was just a keyboard. It is and a everybody keyboard. Everybody thought, yeah, that a keyboard was a prerequisite for a smartphone. Absolutely, period. yeah. And Steve Jobs had the audacity 
to trash the entire keyboard ID and get rid of it. Nobody else had the guts to do that. In fact, even the Android system they were developing at Google had a keyboard. Uh, they were because they, they they just didn't have the uh, the, uh, the the foresight that Steve Jobs had to, to trash it. But Steve Jobs came out with the the iPhone with a complete touch screen. Uh, Andy was actually when they did the announcement. Andy was driving his car. Andy Rubin. He had to pull over, stop the car, and listen to the entire presentation of the iPhone uh, on the radio. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs' presentation. And he says, he drove back to work, and they they decided at that moment to trash the keyboard and just go for broke on a complete touchscreen. And they had been working on a touchscreen, but they weren't going to launch it first. So, uh, <clears throat> and then what happened when when uh, you know when Apple came out, they they changed the whole power structure of the uh, of phones, and they took the power away from the carrier. And they put it in the hands of the, um, you know, of, of, of the of the uh, operating system and the the user. And uh, Steve Jobs convinced AT and T to agree to those terms. And so they launched the iPhone with as an exclusive carrier with AT and T. Within within a year, uh, uh, customers were transferring to AT and T just to get access to the iPhone. So the other carriers noticed. So. And so they started, uh, and so they that sort of pushed the other carriers to the Android, which was an open operating system, and it was supported by Google. So the first manufacturer su- that supported the uh, Android operating system was Motorola, and the, the phone that they released was called the Droid. <laughs> oh, I remember that one, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, yeah just and not Android, just the Droid. And then... Pretty soon, AT&T came over. I mean, Verizon came over. The carriers got on board, and the in uh, and the in the in um, the Android system, operating system began really taking off. Now, and and the interesting thing about the Android system, it was open source. The carriers liked that because then they could, uh, and the manufacturers liked it because they could they they could put their own spin on the um, on the operating system. And um, and so it and it was also the operating system was free it was op- it was since it was open source so that meant that you could you, you could sell a phone at a very low cost because you paid nothing for the operating system and the re- and you might ask well what why would Google give away a free operating system because they organized the operating system to track people so they could make money on advertising so they they didn't they wanted to basically give away the operating system. So they could make money on the data. Wow. And so that was their that was their angle, and uh, and and they're still doing that. Now it, by twenty uh, you know by twenty thirteen, I mean he basically launched Android um, operating system. He's ready to move on. So he moved to he left the the Android division, and he was put in charge of the um, he was put in charge of the robotics division in March of twenty thirteen. Back to his love, back to his true love, Doc, robotics. This was his true love in in 2013. He was just, he was just on seventh heaven there. Uh, Finally, (laughs) he could, he could devote himself to, uh, to robotics. And there at Google, they were going to fund him uh, with as much money as they wanted. He could just do whatever he wanted with robotics. He was really on cloud nine. 
And then tragedy struck for Andy in 2014, the next year. He was fired from Google for sexual harassment. And that, that was a sad day. He was, uh, Google gave him a $90 million settlement. It was all hush-hush. Nobody said why he was fired. Uh, nobody knew about the settlement. It all came out later. But he was fired and left Google. Now, when Google employees found out about that $90 million settlement, they, there were a lot of protests. They didn't like it. But initially, it was a, it was a secret. Now, he left, and, uh, and he, uh, in 2015, he started Playground Global, which was a VC firm, and it was a studio for technology startups. It provided funding, resources, and men mentorship. Now, he stayed with Playground Global till, uh, till uh, May of, of 2019. Do we know but, why but he what, left that? I mean, he had founded it, after all. Why would he leave something he had started? Well, there was, uh, in 2019, uh, his wife uh, filed for a messy divorce. Oh, wow. And all of his stuff became public. Oh, that's so a it shame. was. It okay, became so, problematic. All yes. of his all of his activities were in that in that divorce settlement. They all became public. It became problematic there. So it was basically he just left. He just left the company. Mm -hmm. Now, in, at the one of but this company, Playground Global, one of the companies that they were supporting was Essential Products. It was an Android phone startup. So he went to work at. Uh, so he became one of the co-founders of, of Essential Products, and he went to work there and started working on a second Android phone system. But um, and he was then they were working on that. Maybe they're going to get a, a, a competing uh, operating system to what he had done at Google. But um, but uh, Essential uh, Products announced on February 2020 they were ceasing operations because he also left there. I think this all was part of Andy's downfall, all relating to the same thing. It's a sad case. Now, he still loves robotics. He's, of course, his front door, he's got a retinal scanner. When you go there, he doesn't unlock the door. You just put, you just look in the scanner. It scans your, your retina and unlocks if you, if it recognizes you. And, of course, he's got the robotic arm, uh, uh, the robotic arm um, doorbell. So there you go. Everything you'd want to know about the rise and the ultimate fall of Andy Rubin in Silicon Valley. Yeah, well, pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair. Doc will examine the success of the Android OS. Observations from the Faculty Lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. To dream the impossible dream To fight the unbeatable foe to bear with unbearable sorrow To run where the brave dare not go If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University. Coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Why? Was the Android operating system successful? I just gave a hint a there a moment possible ago. Possible dream. Yeah, I just, hmm? I just, I just hinted at that musically. Did you notice that? I did like that. <laughs> it was. The, I mean, when when uh, when he went out to VCs, he talked to VCs about his dream of making an operating system for cell phones. They laughed at him. They said, "Well, you'd have you'd have to sell a million operating systems to make a profit," and they said, "That's just impossible." Uh, he ended up sell, uh, he ended up uh, distributing over a billion operating systems in the end. Now, why was it successful? And there's there's some hints to it that uh, that I'll talk about that are sort of all the underpinning of all successful operating systems that become ubiquitous. First of all, it was open source. Now that meant it gave a chance for the phone manufacturers and the carriers to modify the code. That was very important because they wanted to put their own spin or their own skin on it. And if it's open source, they have a chance to do that. Secondly, uh, the Android system supported a lot of hardware. There was hardware diversity. There were a whole range of manufacturers that produced hardware for the Android operating system. And so you had lots and lots of different variations of hardware all around the world. Uh, as opposed to Apple, which had one set of hardware, and it was a closed operating system that only Apple controlled. And, you know, nowadays it's kind of the opposite because there's so many iPhones out there. But at the, remember, at that time, people were designing apps primarily and often exclusively for Android because sort of doing it for Apple was an afterthought. Like, well, maybe them too. But it was right. so easy to do stuff for Android, so everybody was sort of jumping on the bandwagon to create apps for, for that system. Exactly. Now, the, the third thing is that that operating system was free. Since it was open source, it was free. I mean, that was a, uh, that, that was a big factor because <clears throat> there are some phones around the world that, you know, that sell for less than $100, uh, and, and, and so particularly in the developing countries. And the only way you can sell a piece of hardware that cheap is if the software is free. And so the operating system is free, so it's very amenable to the low-end phones. So the Android system was the perfect combination of control. Uh, you know, Google did have control also over Google Play and the type of apps that could be on it. It could only load apps from Google Play. So there was a, some degree of control over it. There was control over the kernel, but over the, the skin there was not control. So it had flexibility. So you had control, so you could update it, you could maintain security, but you had flexibility so carriers could express themselves. 
And finally, it was uh, it had the right price. And that would be compared to the big competitor, the iPhone, which was a luxury phone only aimed at the high-end market, at the rich countries, and it was a closed model, and it only would support exactly what Steve Jobs and company would do. So it was the complete opposite of the iPhone. The Android was more utilitarian, every man's phone, and the iPhone was the luxury phone with absolute control. And guess what? The Android, with those attributes of price, control, and flexibility, now owns 87% of the global phone market. And most of those are in developing countries. Now, in the U.S., it only owns it owns it only owns 41% because in the US more than 50% of all the phones are iPhones why because the US can people can just afford in the US to spend $1000 on a phone but they can't do that in say India so android became the global mobile phone and US and iPhone became luxury mobile phone so there you go. That's why Android was successful. To write the unwritable wrong, to love pure and chaste from afar, to try when your arms are too weary, to reach the unreachable star. Oh, we're really romanticizing this guy now, aren't we? <laughs> well, we certainly are. <laughs> You know, I, I think what I I think let's just go to the birth of weather forecast. Let's talk about that. Let us talk because today, especially we've got some nasty weather going on in this country. We've got some uh, big, huge storm up and down the coast, freezing temperatures everywhere, everywhere we are. So let's talk about how to figure out what the weather is going to be. You know, how, how did that how, happen, Doc? So, see, the thing is, we always haven't had weather forecasting. It used to be people just whatever weather showed up. That's what they had. Well, weather force forecasting was created by a man called Admiral Robert Fitzroy. Uh, Fitzroy was chiefly remembered as Charles Darwin's captain on the HMS Beagle during the famous circum circumnavigation in the 1830s. That's when uh, Charles Darwin went to Galapagos Islands and discovered the theory of evolution. But in his lifetime, Fitzroy, Fitzroy found celebrity not from his time at sea, but from his pioneering daily predictions that he called by a new name of his own, forecasts. Now, there was no such thing as a forecast in 1854 when Fitzroy established what would later be called the Met Office. With no forecasts, fishermen, farmers, and others who worked in the open had to rely on weather wisdom, the appearance of the clouds. They actually also used the behavior of animals. Yeah. <laughs> they would see what the animals were up well, to. Well, you know, you, this, is, this was the rule of thumb. This is red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailor's warning. That's all they had to go on. That's exactly. Yeah. So uh, now Fitzroy, he was troubled by the massive loss of life that the sea cost uh, around the coast of uh, Victorian Britain. Between 1855 and 1860, 7,400 ships, 7,400 ships were wrecked off the coast of uh, Britain with a total number of lost lives of 7,200. Fitzroy believed that forewarning 
that with forewarning, many of these lives could have been saved. Now, after the disastrous sinking of the Royal Charter Gold Ship in 1859, he was given the authority to start issuing storm warnings. Now, the reason he could do that was because of, of a particular invention that had just come out, the electronic telegraph. See, up before the telegraph, you could not communicate with somebody, say, 100 miles away and get instantly what was going on there. But with the telegraph, somebody could, somebody could look at the weather, they could get a humidity rate reading, they could get a temperature reading, they could get, you know, wind readings, and they could send them 100 miles. And you could then gather real-time data from the coasts all around the coasts of England. In real time, you could consolidate them. And what he began to observe is that weather had patterns. So if there would be a big windstorm up here, it would sort of travel down the coast, and you could see it moving down the coast when he had the telegraph data, and then you could predict when it would arrive there. So he was able, by looking at patterns of data that he was getting from the telegraph, he could predict what the weather might be in two days. And Fitzroy would, would do the weather forecasts, and then he would also do his storm warnings, like analyzing atmospheric data. He reasoned that he might as well, you know, he might as well, you know, if he could predict if it's going to be stormy or weathering, why did he just predict what's going to be fine, fair, rainy, or stormy? And they started publishing his, uh, his forecasts in, in the newspaper. The first one was published in the Times of 1861, and then it was syndicated all across Britain, and they soon became very popular. Now, his department that consolidated all this data initially only had three people. Now in Britain, that department, that weather department, employs more than 1,500 people and has an annual budget of more than 800 million pounds. So what we have here is an invention, the telegraph. This is always what happens. Something is invented. You apply it. It was originally done just for sending messages, but it was applied to weather, and you had a new development, weather forecasting. Now, unfortunately, Fitzroy committed suicide because he was, he was despondent because people made fun of his weather forecasts. He didn't have sufficient data, and sometimes he would put in the, in the, in the newspaper that uh, it would be raining and then it would be sunshine and people were laughing at him. Uh, but what I didn't realize until I started looking at Fitzroy is that the two previous captains of, uh, captains of the HMS Beagle which was the, the ship that Darwin was on, had committed suicide. And Fitzroy somehow thought he was destined to be there. So it was kind of a sad ending for him. But there you go. The man who developed weather forecasting all because of the invention of the telegraph, uh, Robert Fitzroy. Now, let's talk about, um, what are we going to talk about now? Yeah. Let's see here. We're on pins so, and needles, Doc. We're on pins and needles. We're on pins and needles. We want to so know what you're going to choose. What will you choose? What will I choose? So <laughs> People don't know. We've got like a list of uh, five, six topics so and many things, so, many so many things, things we never to get to about. every week. So many things we never mention. So, so we, let's talk about the DeFi platform that lost $80 million. Yeah. Yes. There's a this chump, is chump change in the world of cryptocurrency, by the way. This is a cryptocurrency. Remember, you, they're making distributed finance platforms. You have all the rules built in the, the logic of the system. And they're built, actually, most of the DeFi networks now are built on top of Ethereum. 
uh, but they, you know, but they, you know, but there are other there are other platforms that are coming out there to support distributed finance. So there's one uh, distributed finance platform, Qubit Finance, and they took the Twitter Twitter last night, and they were reporting that they'd lost more than 80 million in stolen cryptocurrency this week. Oh wow! Now the DeFi platform said their protocol was exploited by a hacker who eventually stole 206,000 Binance coins, that's the cryptocurrency for the, for the Binance network, from the Qubits, Qbridge protocol, and they were worth more than $80 million. So Qbridge is a protocol that allows you to transfer coins say, from, say, the Ethereum network to the Binance network. Now, an hour after the first message, the company explained they were tracking the exploiter and monitoring the stolen cryptocurrency. So what happened was there was an error in the Qbridge network. So he was able to extract money from his, uh, to place money into his personal wallet without actually putting Ethereum into the Ether network. And he could make it, make the distributed finance network think that he had put Ethereum into the network and he was going to take out uh, Binance cryptocurrency from the network. And uh, he didn't have to put in any Ethereum. So it was because of a, of a failure in the logic of the, of the Q-bridge, which bridged the two networks, he was able just basically to take $80 million worth, worth of crypto. And it's in his wallet, and they, 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 they cannot get it back. So what, what they're, they're begging him to give it back. They said, we'll give you a hacker's fee of $250 if you give it back. Now, they can track it because all the, all, the, all the wallets are public, and they think they know who he is because if he makes a public transaction, they might be able to track it back to him. So they're watching the money to see what he's doing with it. Uh, this has happened in other cases. There was a DeFi network that was hacked on the Ethereum network. And there was one group of people said, look, we, we think the money should be given back. So they just changed the blockchain code. They gave back the money, which totally violates the whole blockchain. And uh, there was some, one group of people said, no, you can't do that. And so there was a fork in Ethereum. So Ethereum 2 fork gave back the, uh, the, uh, the $80 million that was stolen. The Ethereum fork did not give it back. So we're having a similar debate here. They're begging to get it back, but... We don't know what's going to happen. So that's the trouble with distributed finance. We're going to have to get that whole technology regulated in order to get it done. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Check us out on our website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them you heard about the programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.